0: I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate, and City of Manningham councillor.
1: And I'm Alan Kohler, editor in chief of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and Economist for the New Daily. And we are the Money Money Cafe. Cafe Cafe. For the
0: first time in six weeks for the cafe, and no, five weeks for the cafe, and six weeks for you and I.
1: Just shows that we are completely bereft without Greg.
0: I think there's politicians who work harder than we do, Alan parliamentary sitting times and things. But, look, Greg had a nice trip to Europe, which is good.
1: Yeah, it did. He did. We've so, had um, six
0: weeks to come up with our lines for today. <laughs> so, see how we Better do. be good then, Stephen. Better be good. That's right. Well, so.
1: the, the most um, immediate news is US inflation, which was out last night. Um, the headline is that it's 8.5% down from 9.1% in June. This is for July. Um, the expectation, the consensus forecast, was 8.7%, so slightly better than expected. But the thing is, 8.5% is the annual inflation rate. That is to say, the from July last year, the change in the CPI from July last year to July this year, right? Which was what the so it's a
0: rolling month was. 12 monthly inflation. It's a measure. rolling
1: 12 months. Yeah. The actual inflation rate for the month of July was zero. Yeah.
0: Correct. It was a from
1: July to zero to July. From June to July, the CPI in the US did not change yeah, at all. And,
0: and energy was down four point six. That exactly. was the biggest driver. But coffee is up twenty percent in the US. So there's still issues with food, wheat, canola, are you are talking about like coffee beans or coffee? I think to- it was well. CNBC this morning just said coffee up twenty percent. So I I can't answer your detailed question there, Owen, But uh, but the energy story down and food up, I think was the headline, but overall lower than expected, hence yet another continuation of the big summer rally in the US.
1: Absolutely. That's right. Um, but, uh, I mean, I must say, I think that the annual, the inflation rate, talking about an annual, is kind of invalid, you
0: know, like it's... Yeah. I prefer quarterly. I think it's... Monthly data is just too often. Imagine if BHP was reporting monthly. You know, I think it's just it all go frequent. mad. Yeah, correct. That's right. It's hard enough dealing with six monthly. But,
1: but you know, the ABS in Australia is going to come out with monthly inflation data. Now they put out a, a information note yesterday to the effect that they're going to have a monthly CPI indicator, but not the actual CPI.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So they're going to they're going to do the quarterly CPI, but every month they'll yeah. come up with what they call the CPI indicator, which appears to be not quite the CPI. <laughs>
0: Perhaps it's a good halfway house. So it is more, more disclosure, and disclosure is a good thing, yeah. but it's not going to have headlines every five weeks yeah. like the Americans have. And I guess this ties in partly with the, with the Twitter takeover because this rally in the US, this summer rally, has been phenomenal. The tech stocks are all coming back. So I think it now looks like that the Twitter-Musk deal will go ahead. And the fact that he's sold $9 billion worth of shares in the last three or four days... And has now sold 32 billion Australian dollars worth of shares in the last 12 months. I think it's the largest cash takeout by a billionaire ever. Shows that he's getting ready to pay US 44 billion in cash for Twitter when he loses in the Delaware courts. Right. So that's a big deal. Yeah, so I think Trump's going to be back on Twitter by the end of the year, I think, because Musk will have control. He won't lose control of Tesla. He's only down to 15% of Tesla now. He's still got... Well, his he control's getting shaky. It's hard to control why something does that mean 15%. Trump's back on Twitter? Well, I think he's a right-wing uh, oligarch, Musk, and I think he'll let Trump... And he's a free speech obsessive. I think he'll let Trump back on when he controls Twitter. And I think he's now going to control Twitter because he's going to be forced to pay up because it's very hard to break contracts in Delaware.
1: Right. Isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah. So, And, and I think this is because... The Tesla share price has held up. You know, it's now back up to sort of 850, and he's still got 134 billion US dollars worth of Tesla shares, even after selling Aussie 32 billion dollars worth. So he can control
1: both. You heard it here first, everyone. Stephen Mayne exclusively has predicted. That uh, Musk will end up owning Twitter.
0: Well, t- Twitter shares are up three point seven four percent overnight to a three month high of forty four dollars forty three. That's that's getting within range of the fifty four twenty, the the marijuana price that uh, Musk is bidding. So um, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's going to close. The <laughs> marijuana
1: price. Well,
0: that's the code fifty four twenty. Apparently, is the some, yep. I don't understand drugs, but apparently it's some message to all the all the dopers out there. And um, and I think if he really has a cash flow problem, he just sells back 49.9% of it and sits there with 50.1% and Twitter's his personal fiefdom and he can still hang on to everything else he's got.
1: Now, you want to talk about the Macquarie AGM, which was a while ago now, wasn't it? Last week or the week before? It was
0: a while ago. We had a lot to cover with our, our six weeks off. But look, it was Glenn Stevens's first uh as a public company chairman. so he's Did you now direct
1: a question at him?
0: Well, I, I, for the first time, I had three different ways of asking questions. So I'd lodged four questions before three days before the AGM started. And then when I saw that they were planning to delay the physical questions until the very end, they dealt with all the online questions. I sat down with my 95-year-old father just as the meeting was starting, and we pumped out four questions in his name. Then I went into the Grand Hyatt and sat there and it was hilarious. I sat there for about 45 minutes as these Macquarie people were reading out questions from me and my dad that had been submitted (laughs) beforehand and then I sort of, well, there's not much to say at the end of all that but I thought, I then threw four or five in at the end and that was it. But overall, I was disappointed with Glenn Stevens. He was a bit secretive as a Reserve Bank Governor, less, more secretive than both Mr Lowe and his predecessor, Ian McFarlane and he was a little bit Patrician, how dare you ask questions in his tone. So when I asked, has the PwC audit contract ever gone out to contract, he sort of waffled and didn't answer it when it has never gone out to contract. They've been paid a billion dollars in 30 years and it's never been tendered and still not planned to be. And then he wouldn't talk about securrency. You know, that was a scandal where five people went to jail, $24 million in fines... And he was the executive chairman of the Reserve Bank for the duration of that. And they were a 50% joint venture partner in the currency. So it was a bit of a blot on the governor's copybook. And he just sort of looked at me and said, oh, I've nothing further to add. Yes. That happened, you know, 10 years ago now. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, they're going well. Part of the most interesting thing was I asked, how did you get chosen to be the chair? And he handed over to the company secretary, Dennis Leong, who, who said, said he performed so well... Sharing the risk committee during COVID when all the directors were attending that we made him chair. So he was the the, 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 the crisis risk committee chair, right. but that didn't answer the question as to why they made him wait another 16 months from that period before they handed the baton. So the previous guy went an extra year, so he clearly must have said, I'm not quite ready, but now he's in the chair, the first RBA governor to become chairman of a bank, and that sets a bad tone because every... Every next RBA governor is going to say, I'll finish up making a million bucks a year as a chairman of a bank too. I mean, it's not a good look.
1: Um, no, fair enough. There you are. And speaking of banks, CBA's results this week um, uh, made quite a lot of money, up uh, 9.5% or something for the um, for the year. Um, Matt Common, $6.95 million. Salary up from 5.2,
0: thoroughly deserved. I think he's the thoroughly best, deserved. probably the best big four CEO we've seen. I would say Catherine Livingston was under enormous pressure to go outside when she became the clean up chair after all the scandals that led to the Royal Commission, Four Corners, etc. Went for Matt Common instead against the you know go outside untainted zeitgeist. And both of them have done a superb job, in my view. CBA is now worth 173 billion. Um, it's just you know it's thirteen point six billion pre-tax, the tax bill's $4 four billion. It's a, no bank's ever paid a four billion in tax. Before. And the
1: government sold it for eight point eight.
0: Yeah, billion. correct. And the Liberal Party of Victoria owns two hundred and sixty thousand shares, so they've got now got twenty seven million dollars worth of CBA shares with the stock at one hundred and two this morning. So the like, Queensland Labor Party's got about ten million bucks. So there's eight hundred thousand happy shareholders out there, and they're so happy that they've called the annual meeting to be held at the MCG. In a few weeks' time. Well,
1: they're going to get 100,000 people, are they? Well,
0: I mean, it doesn't say we're having it at the Melbourne Cricket Club in the Jim Stein's room or something. It just says we're having it at the MCG on Brunton Avenue, as if they're going to fill it out, and Catherine Lemington's going to be chaired off after a standing ovation from 100,000 happy shareholders (laughs) for doing a great job as chair.
1: Yes, I'm sure that's true. Well, um, uh, yeah, I don't think they're going to get 100,000, are they? They'd have to bribe them.
0: Well, if they offered 200 bucks in a term deposit account for everyone who turn, every shareholder turns up, they would get 100000 But these companies never try to get numbers at the game for no. the AGM. But, uh, no, yeah, true. she's done a great job as chair of CBA, chair of uh, Telstra before that, CEO of Cockley. I think she's probably the best credentialed CEO chair that we've produced in 30 years, I'd say. Who's going to replace her? Paul O'Malley, the blue scope steel. So it's a bit... Unusual to go for a non finance sector chair, but I guess she she was a non bank chair as well. She was the CEO of Cochlear. but
1: yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I actually think that the the common appointee for a bank chairman is someone outside finance. Yeah, often manufacturers.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, John McFarlane's got the got the Westpac gig, and he was CEO of ANZ, so yeah, that, that, that's was the, true. that was that was a club deal. But uh, yeah, but I think that um, you know, I just think actually the other point with the banks is, do you know that they've they're, they're currently capitalised at $486 billion, right, the five of them today. So CBA is at $173 billion, which is almost the value of NAB and Westpac combined. Yet they've currently got $144 billion in loans from the Reserve Bank in, in free printed money at 0.1%. 0.1%. So I just think they should pay that back. They're making such big money. Can you believe that? You know, as... a three-year facility from the central bank of printed money. I said that to Glenn Stevens at Macquarie. You feel comfortable with this? You were the boss of the RBA, and now the RBA's printed $11.3 billion and given it to you three years at 0.1%. It's not a good look, mate. You should pay it back. And what did he say? If you're implying I had any influence over that, it's totally wrong. I found out when I read it in the paper like everybody else. (laughs) <laughs> with a slightly sneering tone. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's unconscionable in my mind that, that this, this loan, everyone else's mortgage rate is going up, but this RBA loan is fixed at 0.1%. So the, the should have been thing, a floating rate, shouldn't should it? Should have been a floating rate like everybody else. Yeah. So. Now, what about a war with China? You, you seem to think this is a hot issue. And Oh, no, it's just
1: that uh, the uh, – well, I do think it's a hot issue. Obviously, it's a hot issue with um, China's reaction to Pelosi's visit, but um, uh, a lot of the American commentators have gone from saying a war with China or, or at least an invasion of Taiwan and a conflict of some sort between America and China is has gone from possible to probable. Um, but I interviewed for Talking Finance, I interviewed Natasha Kassam from Lowy the other day, and she said, no, 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 don't worry.
0: Yes, happen. I heard that this morning, actually, on Talking Finance. It was a good good package. Unlikely. Neither side wants a war. No. And I agree with that. Yeah,
1: so neither side wants a war. But
0: sanctions, definitely. I mean, they've already sanctioned us. A- and it is true. That, in fact,
1: we didn't get into this with, with Natasha, but uh, a, a war with the US would uh, be completely disastrous for China. Correct. Because they they'd rely lose. so much on imports. Yeah,
0: yeah. and um, they lose. And
1: particularly their energy imports. Yeah. So Imagine the place if we
0: turned off the iron ore,
1: and the, turn off the iron ore, turn off their energy, their natural gas imports, turn off the beef and the, place, and the, the lamb. The place would just shut down.
0: And the big one, powdered milk for the babies. You just turn that for the off. Babies, turn you it turn off. Turn that off, and you'll yeah, have a so lot of civil be, unrest.
1: There'd be serious problems. So I don't think. Yeah, I think it's absolutely. Yeah.
0: Not and the first happen. thing we, the first thing we should do is, if, if it does come to that, is is forced divestments of their equity positions, Chinese state's equity positions in things like the port of Darwin. The Portland Aluminium Smelter, the Cape Preston Iron Ore business, which is delivering billions to Clive Palmer and royalty. So we would we would commandeer a lot of their yeah. state-owned assets here, uh, as part of that sort of choke off the iron ore and coal mm. uh, treatment as well, which would which would hurt them because you're right, they're so, so just before we
1: move on to questions, um, you wanted to do a bit of a capital raisings wrap.
0: Oh, I just wanted to give ANZ a, a nice pat on the back for doing their 3.5 billion dollar offer, which is a pro rata, accelerated, institutional, tradable, renounceable entitlement offer. Basically, what it, it is means... such a mouthful. Yeah. Basically, what it means, though, is that is that the 550,000 retail shareholders, if, if 300,000 of them don't open the mail and don't participate, they will be compensated. Their rights will be sold off in a book build. And everyone's treated fairly. And you contrast that with what happened at car sales, where they did a non-renounceable and 11,000 of their 19,000 retail shareholders didn't take it up. And this left $179 million shortfall, which just went to the big end of town underwriters. And they're now, you know, $30 million in front on those shares because the share prices popped. So if you do a non-renounceable capital raising, and you deliberately structure it so there's no compensation for non-participating retail, or you can't apply for extras, it's deliberately designed to shaft retail shareholders and it should be banned. And I just wish ASIC could do something about this rather than harassing finfluencers and other silly things they seem to do rather than focusing on the, the big issues. On the, on the shafting of retail shareholders. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely right. We should do
1: some questions. So, um, number one is Hamish. Hey, fellas, quick one. Stake have started offering this thing called stock lending. So you lend out your stocks and receive a monthly fee for someone borrowing them. What's the catch? Free money sounds too good to be true. How much risk is there? Um, Well, not much risk at all. The only risk is that the people that you lend them to uh, drive the price down.
0: Yeah. So if you look at the the Opus Prime scandal a few years ago, that that was a potential risk of uh, securities lending business. So I'd you'd want to check that they've got a JP Morgan or someone credible standing behind a startup broker offering securities lending. I'd be asking a few questions, but the average price when you do lend your stock is only 13 basis points. It's like, it's just so small. It's not much. No, but it it all depends on the price. I mean, there's some micro caps. There's one at the moment where, I think Brainship, I think it's called, where everyone thinks it's going, you know, in a bad way. And so it costs you 25% a year if you lend that stock at the moment. So it's an opaque over the counter mm. market, but there hasn't been a history of default. And so I think probably if they're offering hopefully more than thirteen basis points a year, hand over your portfolio and take the extra turn. But be aware the people who borrow the stock are gonna sell the shares and try and drive the price down. So yeah. if you're comfortable with that, go for it.
1: Yeah. I mean it is worth bearing in mind that most short sellers lose. Most most short selling doesn't actually Succeed in driving the price down, but uh, sometimes it does.
0: No, I actually disagree. I mean, there's been some famous failures like anyone who shorted Tesla. But at the moment, the biggest short positions are Flight Centre 15%, Block Square, which bought uh, after pay 11.46% of the company is currently sold short, Nanasonic 11.16, Lake Resources, an overblown lithium wannabe. 10.8%, 10.8 percent. All those people are making good money from shorting that stock because it's been coming off. And Regis Resources 9.1 percent. So these are big numbers. I mean, 15 percent of Flight Centre. That is a lot. That's hundreds of millions of dollars. So people are making very big bets on that. That's right. And the problem with shorting is that your losses are unlimited. Because if the thing suddenly surges tenfold, you know you, you you've got to buy back at whatever the price is. Whereas yes. on the downside, you can only go to zero. Yeah. Now, Nick says, as interest rates march up, do you think we'll see used car prices soften? Surely, as supply chain issues ease and the supply of new models increase, we'll see the price of used car, used cars rationalise. Also, growing up, my folks said to never touch regional property. There just isn't the demand, they'd say. Will we see the great jump in regional prices correct more than metro centres?
1: I don't know much about the used car market. I mean... Um uh, but I've been waiting for the used car prices to soften, particularly internal combustion used yeah. cars, because yeah. at some point um, everyone's going to buy, be buying electric cars yeah. and not buying internal combustion. So, but it hasn't happened yet.
0: Well, our house is is four drivers, two cars, and it's driving us crazy at the moment with people going off to uni and all sort of stuff. So, but it's just so ridiculously expensive for used cars. I mean, during the pandemic, I was renting at thirty bucks a day because it was really, really cheap. But uh, it's just gone through. I think it's going to crash when electric cars come on. Yeah. But you have to pay 15 grand for a clunker at the moment because supply is so tight. Uh, new cars, uh, old cars, all cars is tight. So that's been the really amazing thing about the pandemic is that car prices have shot up, yeah. you know, 30 to
1: 40%. So, Nick, we agree with you. Shortly. <laughs> Surely the prices will soften. We, we agree, but we yes. don't know when.
0: And I think retail, I think re- regional property will hold up okay because of the long term work from home. Yeah. I think that's. I agree. Uh, I think it'll
1: hold up better than city.
0: Yeah, City's. correct. And, and particularly with tree changes, particularly uh, coastal regional. I think coastal regional, you know, it's just a, you know, a Phillip Island. I mean, we've got a place at Phillip Island, a little tiny place at Cows. Been amazed that we've been able to rent it the last two winters. Yeah. You know, 11 bidders in the first sort of six hours, it goes on the web. Whereas previously, it's a ghost town. it was a ghost town in winter, you could never rent it. So it's been a massive yeah. change.
1: Luke says, quick one for you. If the cash rate goes up to 3.5%, what do variable interest rates for a home loan go to? Well, um, the last time the cash rate was 3.5% was September 2012. So exactly 10 years ago. And at that point, the variable mortgage rate was 6%. So, uh, history would tell you it'll go to six percent. Um, things have changed a bit. It's, I think the net interest margins of the banks have come down a bit since then.
0: Well, CBA's was a record low this week. Only yeah. one, only one point eight percentage point down eighteen basis points. So yeah. That's the skinniest net interest margin ever. But the so, current margin on their home loan book is four percent at CBA. Right. So. Um, well, that, uh, suggests
1: threes, that suggests three. That suggests seven point five percent.
0: Yeah, correct. So if that's current four percent margin stays, it'll go to seven point five percent. It's worth contemplating on a on a six hundred and twenty two billion dollars CBA mortgage book. If everyone was paying seven point five percent, that's forty six point four billion dollars a year of interest payments to the Commonwealth Bank. Um, but the point is, is most of that should be passed through to depositors. Because at the end of the day, they're just... Uh,
1: but it's not going to be.
0: Well, not enough of it will be, yes. No, that's yes. right. Correct. So, um, Now, Josh says, do you think Australians will benefit from putting the RBA under the microscope? Do we need another Royal Commission?
1: I, I don't think we need a Royal Commission into the RBA. I think the, the, uh, the review that they've got uh, going is going to be fine, um, the people on it are uh, going to be an interesting group. Um, I can't remember all their names now, but uh, Carolyn Wilkins is the woman from the Bank of Canada mm. um, and is currently on one of the committees in the Bank of England. She's a very qualified, very experienced ba- central banker, um, and I actually think she should be appointed the next governor. Mm. Um, but we anyway, a,
0: We do need a female governor, and, and there's a history of reviewers becoming leaders of the institution they review. So I think it's quite a smart move.
1: I think the terms of reference are fine. So, look, I think it's going to be a a reasonable shake-up for the Reserve Bank and they'll probably put them under the microscope... Yeah, um, but we don't.
0: I mean, royal commissions are just a feeding frenzy for lawyers, and there's already too many lawyers in Australia. I mean, what productivity do they deliver the nation? All these lawyers. I mean, I'm married to a barrister, and I've got two daughters studying law, but I still think there's far too many goddamn lawyers out there. So, if we were to have a royal commission into anything, I would say the gambling industry we've had three Royal Commissions into Crown, but we've never had a look at online gambling and all those ads on TV and um, foreign bookmakers, pubs and clubs and pokey-sirek, and that'll be a good Royal Commission. But uh, well, we don't well, need one into the into Well, the and the best thing about bank. a Royal
1: Commission is the, is the platform it gives to the aggrieved. Yes. Which... Um, I'm not sure that,
0: that who are that's the, what, Who are the RBA aggrieved. I mean, it's just a, yeah. a policy-making body. It should be looked yeah. at by the Productivity Commission. But I, I agree with going for a panel of expert economists like your bearish mate Gerard Minnick and Saul Leslake and get them on the board independent rather than the traditional sort of corporate board, you know, your typical, hmm. you know, big-end-of-town director's with too many executive directors. So uh, the Treasury Secretary probably shouldn't be there, an executive chairman, poor governance, and then a deputy governor. So it's three ex- government executives there, probably overpowering the six or seven non-execs.
1: I think the, ge- the governor's got to be the chair, the chair. I, I can't imagine. You, you like situ- an
0: executive chairman model. Well, in on
1: that, on that situation, it's not a company. It is not a company. No. It is a policy-making no. body. I think no. that I can't imagine a situation where the chair is not the governor. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we probably should have, uh, you know, full press conferences. I agree with the Sally McManus on a focus on on employment and inflation, not just inflation. I mean, Saul Eslake's comment this with Talking Finance was very interesting that... Uh, recession should be when you've had unemployment go up by 1.5%, I think it was, in 12, 12 months. 12 months or less, yeah. Yeah, that's a better measure of... I mean, how can we, the Americans, be in recession with record low unemployment?
1: Well, they don't think they are in recession. No,
0: but well technically they are, according to that. Our no, measure. but they,
1: don't, they actually don't pay any attention to the technical recession, which I think is very, very good. Uh, Fiona says, I just sold my rental property and now need to replace that income to live on. Am I right to think that it's a good time to purchase capital notes, floating rate notes... Uh, are these profitable, low-risk investments if held to maturity, earning grossed up with franking credits six to seven yep. percent? Purchase big four bank notes. Will these floating notes continue to increase in value as interest rates increase? Uh, well, I think floating rates are definitely the way they go at the I moment. I agree. It's so, much better than fixed. So yeah, I mean, just in principle, it's not. It's not to do with the value of them increasing or increasing in value. They might, but that's not really what it's about. It's about getting a floating rate yield.
0: Yeah, correct. I mean, look at Macquarie. They've just done their Macquarie Capital Notes 6. That's uh, raised uh, $750 million at a 3.7% margin floating above the official rate. I just sold my five this morning for $102.50, having paid $100 for them. So um, I've made $10, and uh, I'll miss out on that tasty yield. Excellent. Excellent. But there's, there's there's hundreds of thousands you can of share shout shareholders. Today's coffee. I will shout today's coffee. There's hundreds of thousands of shareholders in in big five bank hybrids floating rates, and I personally think it's better than fixed fixed yield government yeah. bonds. Yes. yes. Even though with the fixed yield government bonds, you will get your money back at maturity. You will get your hundred cents in the dollar back. Um, and some of those bank hybrids, if they've got a perpetual element to them, you don't know when you're going to get your money 100 bucks back. So that's the only yeah. sort of point I'd make there. Peter says, Could you explain to the listeners, now rates are on the rise, where the extra money people pay on their mortgages ends up? I've read that after the recent rate hikes, a million dollar mortgage holder will need to find $944 a month more. Well, we understand the cost of funds goes up for the banks. Ultimately, Who benefits?
1: Uh, Well, the answer is savers or those with capital benefit. I mean, the whole thing about interest rates is that when interest rates are down, um, that represents a transfer of wealth from savers to borrowers. And when interest rates go up, the reverse
0: occurs. Yes. But so it goes to literally the cashed up. So it literally goes to the depositors. But it's not just the case of the owners of capital, therefore, are the undoubted winners, because if you keep Jackie up interest rates, share prices will fall, and the owners of that cash capital will also have some money in shares, so their wealth will... They'll be worse off overall, but they'll be making more from their cash, I think is the the way to describe that. But uh, Yeah, yeah, but it does... It just should pass pass straight through. So, um... Now, David says, could you please explain how the super funds spend the 10% that goes into super, and is that total figure about... Ten billion a month. True, does this huge amount mean that the whole market could recover quite quickly? Because there's so much money going into. So super? So you've probably
1: looked this up. Is it ten billion a month?
0: Um, it's about 120 billion a year overall. So yes, it's about 10 billion a month going into super, and and sort of round numbers, half of that going out. So it's net 60 going into super each year, but then you had the $36 billion of those $10,000 uh, withdrawals during COVID, so that sort of meant that that year was close to net neutral, whereas now we're back on the $10 billion in, $5 billion out, so net growth of $60 billion a year.
1: And yes, it does tend to that, – that net growth in super does tend to hold up share prices to yeah. some extent, but yeah. but it isn't going to mean – that the whole market could necessarily recover quite yeah, quickly yeah. because it tends, depends what the super funds actually decide to do. Yeah,
0: that's right. So, but the super funds are currently twenty four percent in um, in Aussie equities. So that's something like five hundred and sixty billion out of their two point two trillion. That's the APRA regulated super overall. The three point four billion in, uh, trillion in super, when you throw in the, the SMSFs and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I remember, I'll never forget this, when I was working for the Kennet government and we were about to float Tabcor in 1994, suddenly WMC, Western Mining, did a, like an $800 million raising for a, a joint venture with Alcoa, which is now Illumina. And there was commentary about, oh, there's less cash for Tabcor now because WMC have just soaked $800 million out of the market and the market's not that deep. And you fast forward 15 years from that time and the market was able to come up with $100 billion during the GFC. So the power of compulsory super, now at 10.5% of wages uh, because of the uh, July 1 uptick, it has fundamentally changed capital formation in Australia. And we are now a capital-rich country, even though we've got the world's most indebted households. So the the net saving has really just been people have mortgaged their homes and jacked up their super. I I was having a look this morning. I think we've got about half the value of our house in super. And I think there'd be a lot of people who would have more in super than the value of their house and big mortgages. Yeah. So, but it's been a, it's been a great policy for uh, national savings, particularly to support the share market. But the downside is all that household debt.
1: Hmm. Ian says, "Greetings from Montenegro." Um, COVID denial is extreme out here, not just the locals, but also North and Western European tourists. And that's what Greg says when he came back from Europe. He said that they were just not wearing masks, weren't talking about, weren't interested in COVID at all. But or oh, they're all getting it. Well, I think it's very interesting what's going on in Europe about that. I mean, they're all getting COVID. Greg got it within three days of arriving. Here he is. Because they're also, he doesn't want to be spoken about. Because
0: they're also. Slack. Wow, well, this is the world's most locked down city, Melbourne. So um, I know. It's you know we 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 we, but do... we are
1: we are still wearing masks, and we are you know we're sort of worried about it still. In Europe, they're not worried at all. Yeah. But says Ian, that is not my question. <laughs> okay, how does the tax department treat capital returns? I just got two two thousand five hundred one from. Uh, Ardent Leisure. Good for you. It's not a dividend, I believe. Is it? Is it a CGT event? Or does it just mean my purchase price of Ardent shares is now reduced by 2,500?
0: Well, Ian, I've looked this one up. And, and. Ardent has paid a made a 95 cents per share payment to its shareholders, or $456 million in total, after the $1.1 billion sale of their US main event business. Now, the ATO ruling... Is that 46 cents of this is a capital return and 49 cents of it is an unfranked special dividend? So you will need to declare the 49 cent component, so that's roughly 1300 of your 2500 as income this year, as unfranked dividend income. And the balance, the capital component, you can just lower your purchase price. So you don't need to tell the tax man about that this year, but when you do come to sell your ardent shares, you can lower the purchase price by this 49, $0.46 cents, uh, capital return. So Borrell did one similarly. Um, earlier this year, they did a $2.72 or $3 billion capital return, which Kerry Stokes did to pay off the biggest margin loan in Australia at the time. So yeah, you don't see many of these because it's obviously better to have franking. And when companies do buybacks, they tend to do on-market buybacks, like AMP today has announced a $375 million on-market buyback. Or they do off-market buybacks, such as Westpac's $3.5 billion. Even BHP did a $7.3 billion off-market buyback in 2018, where you can direct franked credit, franking credits to low-tax shareholders who can make the most use of them. So that's a bit of a rot because you can you can do it at a 14% discount, and it's a very tax-effective way to get franking credits into the hands of people who can most use them. That's all right, isn't it? Ah, oh, I do agree with Chris Bowen that the you know seven or eight billion of cash payments in franking top-ups is ridiculous, unique policy. But he lost the election on that, so we have this system. So, mm. but uh, from Ian in Montenegro. Um, You know, half basically is capital. Now, I want to make one final point. We've had eight questions today, Alan, and seven of the eight have been men and only one female from Fiona. And I've been listening to lots of earnings conference calls recently, both here and in the US, whether it's, you know, Google or Microsoft. There's no women analysts. All the analysts are blokes. So to our female listeners out there what's the email address again send in your questions because there's too many men asking questions at both the money cafe and earnings conference calls of big public companies here ends the lesson Elle. here we are <laughs> sorry about that rant oh excellent we're, no, a, it was we're a, a table good... of men here when are you going to have a female participant in the money cafe sack me and get a decent female I'm sack you Stephen anyway boy, I think we're done Thanks, everyone, for listening. It's great
1: to be back in The Money Cafe with Stephen Main. Um, I'll be back next week with James Thompson, so send in your questions, and we'll get to them next week. Send the questions to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and all those other things. And
0: I'm Stephen Main, Eureka contributor, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and the cowboy of Manningham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.